This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You wanted to see me, Miss Swinton? Have you been hearing about the new government modernization efforts? AI, RPAs, data science. Things are changing at this agency, and people will need new skills. Oh. I'd like you to get some training. Huh. Look at this management concepts catalog. Wow, over 275 courses. That's right, in local classrooms or instructor-led online classes. We still have budget in this fiscal year, so sign up online. Advance your career with courses from Management Concepts. Get a catalog at managementconcepts.com or call 833-578-8466. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners, so please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of the Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my but I'm walking with the dead. Today, we're looking into the 1996 cold case surrounding 31-year-old Canadian Robert Dennis Blair Adams, who was known socially as Blair Adams, so he went by his second middle name. He was found half-naked and beaten to death in a parking lot of a hotel that was under construction in Knoxville, Tennessee, 2,600 miles from his Surrey, British Columbia home. Over the 25 years since his mysterious death, all leads have been worked and reworked into exhaustion. There still aren't any suspects and investigators only have one piece of DNA. Was Blair running from someone? If so, who was he trying to escape and why? Or did he come across another killer by random chance? This is the story of Blair Adams. Now for some backstory on Blair. According to his mom, Sandra Edwards, Blair was ambitious and kind and cheerful. But that's not to say that he lived a perfect or easy life. There was a period of time when Blair struggled with substance abuse And from my resources, it's really unclear if he had issues with narcotics or just alcohol, because my resources are pretty ambiguous about what exactly he used. But we do know that he attended Alcoholics Anonymous. Got it. Through AA, he was able to come out to the other side of this dark period of his life. He successfully turned his life around and became sober in 1994. He religiously attended meetings for two years. In the following year, 1995, Blair started working for his stepfather's prefab construction company called SS Cedar Homes. It was on an assistant living facility near Frankfurt, Germany. And it was there that he had met a woman while attending a party. And the two began dating. 
Blair had previously been in a romantic relationship with his male roommate, but then went back to dating women. And typically we don't bring up our victim's sexual orientation, but I bring this up because it'll help put things into context later on in the story. It's the 1990s and unfortunately the public wasn't as accepting as they are today. And that could have played a role in some things later on down the road. We're now in 1996. Blair's been sober for two years, but out of the blue, he stops attending Alcoholics Anonymous. But that's not the only thing that's changed in his day-to-day life. He's become scattered and frazzled and panicked, even paranoid. But he doesn't have a history of mental illness. And so this is really out of the blue for his friends and family. At this point, he's working as a construction foreman and he leaves the job site unlocked. That doesn't sound good for his outlook of staying in that job. No, it doesn't. And he actually unexpectedly quits. He doesn't end up collecting his final paycheck. He just decides not to show up one day and never goes back. This doesn't sound very well thought out. He also had told his mom around this time that there were rumors being spread about him. And he told friends that he was afraid somebody would kill him. He sounds really scattered and frazzled and kind of manic. Absolutely. This reminds me so much of the Bryce LaPisa case where out of the blue, he just starts acting out of character. Yes, this is very much Bryce LaPisa. I always feel like I'm saying his last name incorrectly. So give me some grace here, listeners. I probably said it wrong too, so apologies. We're now at Friday, July 5th, 1996. And it's this day he wakes up and decides that he wants to withdraw all of his money from the bank. And he does just that. He goes and takes out $6,000 in cash and empties his safe deposit box, which contained even more cash, jewelry, gold, and platinum. What he did next was a little unusual, but it was 1996, so I'll give it to him. He stuffed all of his valuables into a leather-looking fanny pack. Duke's mail. Do you get it? Because only the ones that get it really get it. Your friends get it. Your mom gets it. Your grandma gets it. Your neighbors get it. Sometimes a dog gets it. Get out of there. What else? Uh, your potato salads get it. BLTs get it. Tailgates get it. And restaurants get it, too. By now, even you probably get it. So get it today. Made without any sugar since 1917, Dukes is that little southern something that makes good things better. Get Dukes. It's got twang. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospa's hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. The following day, Saturday, July 6th, he tells his mother that something's been bothering him. And she knows that something's been bothering him because he's been experiencing mood swings that were described as frequent and wild. Yeah, and moms have mother's intuition. Oh, absolutely. She could tell something was going on, but I don't think until this point she knew 
how bad things were for her son. Yeah, he's 31. So he's been on his own and independent, presumably for a while by now. Right, yeah. He lives on his own. And um, this just happens to be an encounter he has with his mom. He had also been experiencing trouble sleeping. And this is just too much for his mom to see her son in pain. And she asks him if everything's okay. Now, I actually have a quote from her. Uh, Paige, if you don't mind reading it, I think it'll kind of address what she was thinking at this time. Sure. So Blair's mom's quoted as saying, something was obviously very the matter. He hadn't been sleeping well. Something was wrong. I asked him numerous times what was wrong. He said, I don't think I should tell you about it. And to this day, I don't know what it is. This is a mom who was in tune with her son and in regular communications when you're listening to this quote. Like, she knows his sleeping patterns. She knows the differences in sleeping patterns and his normal life patterns. It's kind of hard for me to get out in this case. But yeah, I mean, she knows what's normal for him and what's not. And she's very confident and assured of that in this quote, in my opinion. I 100% agree. That was the perfect analysis of what she had to say about it. And it's a little heartbreaking too, because you could tell she was there wanting to help, but maybe not overstep any boundaries for her adult son. Absolutely. I mean, again, 31 years old, he's off on his own. We can't wonder what if she had done this or looked at this or dug up this or had asked him this. She's also probably not assuming that anything horrific was going to happen to him. Most people don't. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. It's this day that he decides to take a spur-of-the-moment trip to Courtney, British Columbia. His motivation for the trip was to visit his uncle who lived out there. Unfortunately, when he arrived, he realized his uncle wasn't home and quickly returned home to his mother. We're now on Sunday, July 7th, 1996, and... It's this day he decides that he wants to cross the Canadian-U.S. border into the United States. And he decides to use the ferry from Victoria, British Columbia to Seattle, Washington. But he's stopped in the process by immigration officials because they suspect that he's a possible drug courier due to the excessive amount of cash that he has on his person. Remember, he has at least $6,000 in cash, platinum and gold and jewelry and everything that uh, most tourists wouldn't carry with them for a casual trip. Yeah, I mean, these are things that they're looking for. And according to a fantastic show I used to watch, I believe it was called Airline. It was all about Canadian and U.S. border protection and control. And apparently the U.S. is a huge avenue specifically on the West Coast of marijuana distribution and things like that. And you're just not supposed to be bringing those things over another country's border. So um, I thought that that was kind of an interesting piece. And so I guess it makes sense in context of this case that they're going to be looking for suspicious things. I guess just in general being Border Patrol, but when it comes to the West Coast, these things are not a joke for sure. You're right on the money because he had actually lied to the immigration officers about his past drug and assault charges. So it didn't even look good for him on that end. 
As a result, he was denied entry into the United States and returned to his mother's home. The following day, Monday, July 8th, he packed his bags and left his mother's house for the last time. He told her that he was traveling to Atlanta, Georgia for the 1996 Olympic Games. But here's the catch. It's July 8th. The Olympic Games weren't scheduled for another week and a half. They were supposed to start on July 19th. So that is kind of a big window of time of him not having anything to do. And when you're talking about an international trip of sorts, these things are really expensive. So where are you staying for those 11 days and then you still have time past when the games started? But side note, this was one of the best Olympic games literally in my lifetime. So I would want to go as well. But what I am noticing in terms of this case is that he does not want to be in Surrey, British Columbia any longer. And the second he lands back, he's trying to leave again. Yeah. And as I mentioned, that was the last time she saw her son alive. He ended up spending $1,600 on a round-trip airline ticket from Vancouver to Frankfurt, Germany. So again, that leaves us wondering, I thought he was going to Atlanta, Georgia for the games, but now he's bought a ticket to Germany. And why not just say, I'm going to Germany, if that's your plan? Or did a plan get thwarted? What is going on here? Right. And if he would have just said, hey, I'm leaving to Germany, it wouldn't have been that weird because he had spent time in Germany in the past. If you remember, his stepfather owned a construction company out there and that's where he had met a girlfriend. That's enough reason. Right. So this 1600 round trip ticket is scheduled for the following day. But just hours after he purchased it, he went to a friend's house. And he told this female friend of his that he needed to get across the border to the United States. His reasoning was somebody was trying to kill him. He was tearful and frightened and a little bit anxious around her. And she could tell that this was something that he really felt needed to happen. But she told him she couldn't help him. She had kids and didn't want to get involved with transporting someone who was denied entry already. And she had to tell him no. This brings us to Tuesday, July 9th. Instead of flying to Germany with the ticket he bought the day before, like I said, he returned the ticket and rented a car. Again, he tries to cross the Canadian-US border. But he gets out of the car and attempts to cross on foot when he's caught by the Pacific Highway border crossing. This border crossing connects Surrey, British Columbia and Blaine, Washington and is one of the five busiest commercial U.S.-Canada border crossings. When he was caught, Border Patrol was again confused and left scratching their heads about why this man was trying so hard to cross the border with so much money. So much cash. So much cash. cash specifically, that's not safe to do in so many ways. So why do we have so much cash and why do you need to bring it across the border in your pocket, for so to speak? Right. Additionally, he was covered in scratches all over his arms and legs. Nobody knows how he got them, but it was weird. And to up the weird factor, he had been ID'd as someone who matched the description of a man who had been implicated in a recent car theft 
So a blue car was stolen in Vancouver and that same blue car was discovered not far from where Blair had attempted to cross the border. Because of all of this, he was barred entry once again. But they had to let him go because he denied involvement and there wasn't any evidence. So there was nothing they could do. Blair wasn't ready to give up though. He drove his own car to the Vancouver International Airport and it's here that he rented a Nissan Altima. Third time's a charm because on his third try, he made it across the border to Seattle. Here he ditches the Altima at the Seattle airport and purchases an overnight one-way flight to Washington, D.C. This ticket cost $800. That was so much money back then. So much money. And it was weird because here he is going to another country on a one-way ticket. Right. When the round-trip ticket was half the price too. Just nothing's adding up here. No. Even if you didn't want to come back because that wasn't your goal, you were going to overstay your visa or something, why wouldn't you pay half the price? Exactly. It's almost like he didn't want to leave a trail of when he would be coming back in a way or something. Totally. We don't speculate too much on this show, but these are the things that are running through my mind just hearing the story. And it makes me wonder, like you said, we don't, we try not to speculate, but it makes me wonder if he was planning on never coming back. It certainly is the actions of somebody who wouldn't want to be coming back or had no plans of coming back or intentions with all of these different locations. And I did touch on this earlier, but it's just being reinforced here is that his main goal was to just not be in Canada where he was from. Yeah, to not be in Canada. Yeah. He didn't care if it was Atlanta, Germany, DC. He just wanted to be far away from where he was. It makes me wonder if he made it over to Seattle, why he wanted to go all the way over to the East Coast. Right. Was he trying to get to Europe, which the East Coast is six hours closer to Europe by plane? So this is all very interesting, and I am so ready to hear what happens next. We're now on Wednesday, July 10th. He's arrived at Dulles International Airport early and rents a white Toyota Camry. It's around 6.45 in the morning. And it's at this point that he starts a seven-hour drive to Knoxville, Tennessee, which is over 500 miles to the southwest of Washington, D.C. So again, just re-emphasizing what we've been talking about. He's literally zigzagging across the United States. He's not trying to stay in one place for too long. And it's this leg of the trip that's really odd to Blair's friends and families because he didn't know anyone over there Uh, and he had never been there before. So he really had no business to go there. While he's en route to Knoxville, he gets into a small fender bender. He had backed his car into another man's vehicle and the man later commented that Blair was super nice, but he was clearly in a hurry, didn't waste any time with niceties and just had to get out of there. The next reported sighting of Blair was at a gas station on Strawberry Plains Pike in Knoxville at 5.30 p.m. that same day. And it's here that the gas station employee has an unusual encounter with Blair. Blair tells him that 
he has the wrong keys for his Toyota Camry and can't start the car. And the gas station employee is baffled because, of course, he had to have the keys because how else did he drive it and get to the gas station? It it doesn't make sense. Right. This makes no sense. How else would he have gotten to the gas station if he didn't have the keys to the car he had just driven there? Right. I mean, he apparently had another set of keys. And when the gas station employee decided that, you know what, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going to have someone come out and help you out. He calls a repair service driver named Gerald Sapp. He gets to the gas station. And again, this person tries to help Blair. He says, why don't you check your pockets for the keys? And Blair refuses. They decide to look around the area of the gas station and still they don't find the keys. This is bizarre. How did the car get here? It's at this point that Blair suggests that they tow the car to a local motel so he could stay there while he waits for another car to arrive from the rental company. So Sap arranges for a driver to tow the car to an auto shop and he drops Blair off at the Fairfield Inn, which is nearby. Later on, Gerald Sapp would say that he didn't believe Blair to be all there. And he's quoted as saying, he didn't appear to be messed up. He didn't appear to be on drugs, but his mind was not not functioning correctly for some reason. And I feel like this seems to be the most accurate description of Blair's status at this point. Right. He seems a little bit agitated, but was ready to solve the problem by just taking me to a motel. Obviously had called the rental car place or somebody had assisted him in doing so to get another car to be on its way and was ready to call it a night and deal with the rest of the half of this issue tomorrow. So all in all, agitated, a little weird, but nothing that was like, hey, we need to call 911 or get them assistance. Yeah. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Blair went on to make another lasting impression on the Fairfield Inn's manager, who said that Blair was acting nervous and he actually walked in and out of the lobby of the hotel a total of five times within a span of 40 minutes. And this is actually all caught on CCTV cameras in the lobby. He's even shown to be looking behind his back every so often as if he's expecting someone to come up on him. But he finally books a room and at 7.37, he leaves the motel without ever using his room. Do they know he never used his room because it appeared just untouched, like nobody had showered, nobody had slept in there, and he just had simply paid for a room? The resources didn't specifically say how they knew he didn't use his room. From my readings, it appears that he just left the motel property completely. So that's what I'm assuming happened, but nothing was stated exactly why they exactly how they knew. It's just like he wanted to be in constant 
motion. Yes. And was scared to stay in one place. He's almost trying to throw off his scent. Yes. Everywhere he goes. That's the perfect way to put it. Now, this last little section of his activity on this day has only been reported on one of my resources. So take it with a grain of salt, but I had to include it because I felt like our listeners deserve as much information as possible. So this resource specifically states that Blair had been seen at several restaurants with an unknown man. And we actually do have a drawing of what this unknown man looks like. And aside from this, there's no documented sightings of Blair alive ever again. 12 hours later on Thursday, July 11th at seven in the morning, two construction workers find his badly beaten body. They've arrived to work at 7471 Crosswood Boulevard off Interstate 40, which was a half a mile from his motel. They at first assume that he's a homeless man. And when they go to wake him up and get him off the work site, the job site, they notice that he's covered in cuts and scratches. And there's one particular gash on his forehead that seemed to have been done by a club or a crowbar. But that's not the only unusual thing about Blair when the two construction workers find him. What else did they find? I'm glad you asked. There's keys, a key card for the motel on the on the floor near his body. There's a black duffel bag filled with maps and receipts from all of his sporadic travels. And there's also that black leather looking fanny pack the one where he stuffed all his money in after he withdrew it from his bank. Right. It's there. And the cash is there. But he doesn't just have Canadian dollars and American dollars. He also has German money as well. And he has the gold bars, the platinum, all his personal effects like his sunglasses are there. And it's all strewn about or tucked into the pockets of his jeans that he had been wearing. This actually seems to support the theory that he wasn't going back to the motel because he seems to have all of his items with him, especially those items of value that you would be taking with you if you're leaving a certain location and not planning on going back. Absolutely. And that wasn't the only strange thing about the scene. His shirt had been ripped open. And later, investigators explained that it appeared his pants had been removed by someone else because they were pulled down and inside out along with his socks and shoes as if, you know, someone yanked them off him. And was in a hurry to get them back on. Right. When everything was collected, all the money totaled about $4,000. We don't know what happened to the 2000 that was missing, but we do know that one of those construction workers had pocketed a $100 bill and a $10 bill. And fortunately, investigators were able to later recover them. So that's the only money we know that was taken at this point. So we don't have any knowledge of where the other money went. Number one, I'm impressed with their ability to ascertain that a $100 bill was missing. A $100 and a $10 bill. And a $10 Number two, why would you come upon a dead body, which is presumably pretty distressing and traumatic, 
would you go ahead and steal money from it? Right. That's totally tampering with evidence, is it not? Well, not even tampering with evidence. I mean, my first thought would be this poor man, like how could you steal from someone that just endured a brutal death? It it just seems so heartless. Yeah, even if I'm wrong with the whole tampering with evidence thing, that's just me kind of going off the cuff, but you're definitely doing and affecting the crime scene, no matter what that means in a court of law. Not a good idea. No, not at all. Now, once the autopsy was completed, we were able to figure out what the cause of death was. The coroner stated that it was blunt force trauma and the fatal blow ruptured his stomach, resulting in septic shock from the contents of his stomach leaking out. That ultimately killed him. That sounds brutal. So brutal. I mean, it sounds like they beat him to a pulp. But he also put up a fight. And they were able to tell this because his attacker had ripped tufts of hair from Blair's head, but he had bloodied hands as if he had held them up to defend himself. And there was actually um, cuts on his hands where it looked like he had been knocked to the pavement. You know what I mean? So like mm-hmm. he's, he's fighting for his life. Oh, this makes me so sad. It, it's heartbreaking. So do they find anything else at the scene? Yes, they did, actually. Investigators recovered a long strand of someone else's hair. A long strand. Interesting. A long strand. And it's the only significant piece of physical evidence in this entire case. On top of that, certain injuries, and I'm not going to get into it, but certain injuries indicate that he had been sexually assaulted. Unfortunately, no DNA evidence was able to be recovered, but it was clear that sexual assault had occurred. Authorities were hellbent on finding who had done this to Blair. They tested all the pieces of rebar they could find from the construction site, but failed to locate the murder weapon. And when toxicology reports came in, they showed no drugs or alcohol in his system. and as we had mentioned before, he had not been diagnosed with any kind of mental illness. So I think that's a little bit comforting to know that this man hadn't fallen back into his substance abuse ways and he wasn't suffering from mental delusions. This is clearly a man who was in his right mind and had been terrified for his life from a very real threat. Mm-hmm. He was going through whatever he was going through, but maintaining his sobriety all along. Okay, so we've got the construction workers that found him. Were there any other individuals involved? Any witnesses? Anybody that heard something? Called in something that night? Well, investigators decided to canvas the area and they happened upon an ear witness, a security guard. And some reports list him as a construction worker, but I'm more inclined to believe that he was, in fact, a security guard because of the time that he was working. Mm -hmm. But he was at a local business where he worked, and he heard an abrupt scream around 3.30 in the morning. Except he had believed the scream to belong to a woman. And after that scream, he didn't hear anything else. Police investigators also know that Blair had eaten somewhere because there was food discovered in his stomach during the autopsy. 
And like I mentioned before, that there's only one real resource that states he was seen out and about with a man. Right. But this resource goes on to report that there were reported sightings of Blair talking to other men, one at a truck stop and another at a Cracker Barrel restaurant. Unfortunately, investigators weren't able to get any further in the investigation on those leads. And that's where Blair's investigation really ends because there isn't much to go off of. And over the years, there's been a lot of speculation and rumors and um, ideas of what could have happened. And a few of the questions that have been brought up are surrounding the repair service driver. Remember Gerald Sapp? Right. He's the one person that knew where Blair was going to be staying that night. And guess what? Blair didn't stay there. Right. And so police thought, all right, we're going to check him out. Good idea. They brought him in, questioned him, tested his hair samples, not a match. Unfortunately, this entire event derailed his life. It really, you know, led him to quitting his job and was a struggle for him. Absolutely. But we got to try and solve the case. Right. And another unanswered question surrounding this case is where did the German money come from? Did he have it with him? Did he meet up with someone and exchange it? Did he get it from the airport? We don't know, but it's unusual that he would have three different currencies on him. Almost shows a plan of being in three different areas, but having that money on you to begin with, again, back to not wanting to leave much of a trail, which cash will help you not leave a trail. Right. And to this day, investigators for the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation call this case a mystery. Several of these investigators have overseen tens, twenties, thirties, forties worth of homicide investigations. And Blair's is the one that sticks out to them because there are no answers. There's only speculation. Another troubling thing is how his family reacted to the news. About four years ago, I want to say in 2017, an updated article on Blair's case made it into the newspaper. And this investigative journalist did his due diligence and contacted the family. And when he contacted the family, he was a little surprised, I would say, is probably the best way to describe it, by their reaction. They were almost defensive and were uninterested in talking to this investigative journalist about their son's death. It led to Reddit threads questioning if they knew something about Blair's death that we don't know that the general public and investigators don't know. I mean, it's a hard call because unfortunately, one of his goals seems to be very clearly that he didn't want to be where they were. Right. So for those theories, that doesn't look that great. In my opinion, if we're having a conversation about this, it just makes me wonder more about all of the awful things that families and loved ones of those who are missing and murdered often experience. I mean, it is horrible. Down to Sarah Turney receiving a comment about, hey, you don't talk about her enough. 
Like people come up with expectations and you're supposed to be like this and, oh, that's not enough tears or that's too many tears. They experience such awful things that, you know what? Maybe they just didn't want to be involved in the media. But I Mm -hmm. also get where it can back up a theory of, well, what if they had something to do with it? Because guess what? He didn't want to be where they were and whatever else the web sleuths know. So, but like you said, as of today, it's still a very real mystery. Absolutely. And it's so sad because this man was only 31 years old. He had his whole life ahead of him. He had turned his life around after such a dark period in his life. And this is how it ends. It's heartbreaking. And it makes me hope and wish and pray for his family to have justice soon. You know, we're left with a lot of questions in this case. Like, who was the guy that he may have been seen with at the restaurant? Exactly. And a lot of web sleuths actually speculate, perhaps Blair hit on the wrong guy. And it resulted in this tragic ending. Because remember, this is 1996. People weren't as accepting as they are today. I mean, we still have a long way to go in 2021. And this was 25 years ago. Right. So we'll leave it here, which is basically where anybody involved in this case is left, which is with a lot of questions. If you or someone you know has information on Blair's case, please call KCSO's Cold Case Unit at 856-215-2675. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on Instagram at themurderdiariespod at gmail.com. And the Murder Diaries Podcast.com. Go check out our merch store. You have until April 19th to get your goodies. And Natalie wants you to do something. Yeah, I do. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. It sure does. And until then, better safe than dead. Bye. Bye. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.